Welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of EHS Daily Advisor. This week, I talked to Tim Weitz, co-founder and CEO of Optera, about how businesses can improve their sustainability efforts. And now, on in the interview. I'm joined today by Tim Weiss, co-founder and CEO of Optera. Uh, welcome, Tim, to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jay. Thanks for being here. And uh, before we get into our discussion, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and Optera. Sure, yeah. Um, co-founder and CEO of Optera. Optera is a um, really a ESG and carbon management software um, company for, for global companies. Uh, so we work with many of the largest um, organizations in the world on helping them quantify their carbon emissions and ultimately manage their progress uh, towards net zero goals or science-based targets or really um, our, our real focus is on the E side of ESG um, and that's our sweet spot. So let's talk about, today we're going to talk about sustainability, but uh, you know, to lead into that, um, I'm wondering if you can tell me what are scope three emissions and, and why is it so important to get them under control? Yeah, sure. Um, so ultimately, we, we have this kind of the Bible of carbon accounting or, or kind of the gap, if, if you're familiar with financial accounting. Our version of that for, for carbon emissions is, is the greenhouse gas protocol, which divides emissions into three broad categories. Um, so there's scope one emissions, which is the emissions that stem from any assets that you own, operate, that actually consume and, com and combust fuel or emit emissions directly. So things that have a smokestack or tailpipe, essentially, are your scope one emissions. Um, scope two emissions are the emissions that come from the energy services um, that you consume. So electricity, um, kind of the emissions that are emitted uh, you know, on your behalf from the utility. Um, it could also be steam and chilled water, things that are delivered to your facilities, um, and the emissions kind of associated with the third party activities uh, to, to deliver that energy. Um, scope three is really a, um, a, a category that encompasses how your products um, get to market and how they are used. Um, and then ultimately, uh, things that are ultimately stemming from your value chain. So things that are essential to how you operate and run your business, but aren't directly under your control. So think of the emissions that stem from your supply chain, um, from the logistics associated with moving your goods around the world, from manufacturing, outsourced manufacturing, but also the the use of your products from your consumers or uh, the ultimate disposal of those products. Um, or if you're an investor, it's it's the emissions from your from the activities of your portfolio companies or the assets you own. Um, and ultimately, scope three is so critical um, because. Functionally, it maps to how your organization delivers value to the market. Um, and it really uh, is a much more accurate mapping of overall risk to your organization. Um, so when you think of climate risk, you're, you're really thinking about two things. You're thinking about physical risk and transition risk. Transition risk is, is ultimately how hard is it going to be for your organization to adapt to the low carbon economy? Um, and the most important question to answer there is, what do you deliver? What, what is the value delivered to the market today? And how can you do that in a low carbon way? Um, if you produce uh, cement and the actual creation of cement emits, emits greenhouse gases, you have hard problems to solve. Um, even if that happens upstream, if you're a construction company and you don't actually make the cement, someone else does. Um, if you sell laptops, like many of our customers are big IT companies, um, and the actual 
use and the creation of your product relies on semiconductors, um, the actual manufacturing of semiconductors today emits greenhouse gases. Um, and so those are existential threats to how you operate today, but aren't directly in your control. And that's why scope three um, is such an important problem for folks to tackle because you can't just solve your transition risk problem uh, by looking at your own facility. You have to think about the full chain and how you fully deliver value to the market. Um, by virtue of that, is it is that a tougher one to kind of get a get a handle on? Just because it's you know, there's you've got to make more of an effort than just controlling your own you know your own house. Yeah, exactly. It's um, we you know I mentioned we we work a lot in in kind of uh, Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies, and and I can confidently say there isn't a single organization in the world that knows how they're going to solve this problem, um, that knows how they're going to decarbonize their scope three. Um, let alone scope one and two, which is also a challenging problem. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's the challenges rely right now on understanding um, really the first and foremost is getting actionable data, right? And understanding like where are your scope three emissions coming from? Which organizations um, are most critical? And then you have to look under the hood saying, all right, what about this organization needs to change? Is most of the emissions coming from electricity? Okay, great, we can we can apply renewables. Is a lot of it coming from scope one emissions, which are you know typically much harder to mitigate and manage. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have to think about uh, how you're helping that supplier, or helping that customer, or, or adapting kind of ultimately how your products are used um, to solve this problem. That's not a, this is not a problem that can solve in a few years. This is, right. this is a 10 year, 20 year problem and companies have to work on it now to be set up for success um, in the coming decade. And are, I mean, are you finding that companies haven't even started thinking about it or is it, is it are they starting to get aware of it and, and, you know, at the very least starting to ponder how they actually like, you know, go about fixing this? Yeah, co companies are now um, definitely thinking about it and definitely trying to understand how can I make this a manageable problem? Because um, when you first hear about it, learn about it, you say, this is like, I have I have 100,000 suppliers. How could I ever influence right. the activities of 100,000 suppliers, right? And um, Or if you're a big, we, we work a fair amount of retail. If you're a retailer and you have a million SKUs, how can you manage the emissions from a million different SKUs that are sold to people all over the world? Um, it is a massive problem. But the thing that's important to know is that there are very, there's a very quick ramp up time to understand what your biggest levers are. Um, so think about, we, we work with uh, a few big box retailers. They sell anything from lawn mowers to grills to, mm. you, know, you know, anything under the sun that, that goes into a house ultimately. Um, and ultimately most of their emissions you can think of come from a few big appliances. And then you can transform the emissions profile of those few big appliances by um, really influencing your product mix. So are you, if you just stop selling gas powered lawnmowers over the next five, 10 years, you might be able to cut your, your emissions in half. Um, if you just stop selling, you know, coal grills or, or increase the efficiency of them, you might also move, move a big, uh, ha have big levers. If you're a supplier, um, there might be certain commodities like any sort of metals or steel or kind of things that go into what you make that is the, an, an outsized portion of your emissions and just start there. But you have to understand, you have to have enough understanding of the macro 
the, the kind of macro drivers of your scope three for, for you to make those first steps. Um, and you shouldn't be under the assumption that you're going to um, have a holistic strategy in place in the first couple of years right. uh, that's going to tackle everything. So let's talk about um, Google's uh, 2023 cloud sustainability survey and sort of what it found or what it revealed about how companies are dealing with sustainability programs. Yeah, the, the biggest finding um, this year, um, obviously from, from that survey, is that the macroeconomic environment is producing pretty significant headwinds for ESG and sustainability activities. Um, I think that, you know, practitioners in this industry, folks that have been around for, for quite a while, uh, I, I'm, I'm assuming are not surprised by this, right? When you look at how businesses and human beings, how we're wired, we, we respond to the most existential threat first, right? And if you were to look uh, a couple of years ago, um, you know, for the first time, I, I think in history, that first number one threat, I think in, in Google's first survey was uh, in 2022 was climate. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that was that was a unique and interesting period of time where climate was so present in people's minds, um, particularly during the pandemic, that it now elevated to that primary position. That's never been true, um, I think, in the business community. Um, it is very natural for that to fall off the top priority because right now, you know, we could be in, you know, we could be approaching a recession. We obviously have, you know, challenges and, and headwinds in the macro economy. And so uh, businesses aren't going to look at this kind of five, 10 year problem as the first thing on the list. They're going to look at the one year problem, the, right. the next quarter problem. Um, so I'm not really discouraged by this finding. I'm not, I'm also not too surprised. Um, I think that what is encouraging is that this didn't fall down very far from the top priority. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a real um, acknowledgement and understanding that this truly is an existential threat. And you need to figure out how your business is going to look in this new low carbon economy that we're moving towards. Um, and obviously you have a few years to sort this out, but it doesn't mean you don't have to sort it out. Yeah. Um, and so I think that those are some of the big things Obviously, the, the other things that came out of the survey are that, um, you know, ultimately ESG practitioners are going to have to do as much as they were doing before or potentially more with less resources. Yeah. Um, and I think any, you know, ultimately that just requires better focus. Right. And, and what should you what should be your top priority in this period of time where resources are more constrained than they have been in the past? I don't see this as a long-term thing. Um, I think that any business leader who sees the true nature of these problems will understand that uh, the only way to solve them is with, with proper resourcing. Um, and so I'm sure this will come back, but we certainly are in, I think a bit of a lull right now um, that practitioners have to weather. So what are some ways that businesses can more easily meet their sustainability commitments? Yeah, I think in, in this period of time when um, when resources constrained, um, I think the, the most obvious thing to do is to elevate the most important things. Like what is what is it, reorient your program to what is the top priority, the thing that's kind of immovable for us. Um, and really what I see um, when we look at our, our customers, um, I'm obviously biased because we are in the carbon accounting space, but um, 
I would say quality data, timely data, and actionable information and actionable data is the foundation to everything. Um, if you don't have budget to meaningfully increase your decarbonization activities um, or buy, you know, to, to buy some of the core new energy consuming capital or capital intensive things you need to facilitate this transition, it's time to actually ensure that you have the sound business practices and data in place to be ready when budgets come back. Um, and what we find is that there's actually a huge maturity gap um, in terms of what businesses are doing to quantify and manage and measure their emissions. And most companies are flying blind right now, I would say, where they are, uh, you know, essentially compiling all the data to quantify their emissions at the end of the year. Um, and if you are, imagine, you know, I, I'm a, you know, leading a business and, and I have to hit revenue targets. Imagine if I did not know what our revenue was until the year ended. How could I help the company right. achieve the goals that we have? That's what ESG practitioners have right now. And they're still trying to make decarbonization activities happen. They're still trying to make informed decisions. But the problem is it's all reactionary um, and it's all based on old data. Um, and what I would encourage practitioners to do is to, to build a much more mature foundation um, for you to make smarter decisions and make better business cases um, to leadership. Um, and that's going to require having that quality information that is accurate, right? And you know you can trust it. Um, and then it's timely, right? You have data within the year that you're operating in and you can make decisions to influence where you're going in this year. Um, and, and so you can maintain a glide path, you can maintain performance. Um, and then obviously the last is actionable and, and actionable in our industry is, is really moving away from assumptions and models data into direct data. So the best way to understand how to decarbonize your supply chain is to understand which suppliers should you, should you target first? Mm -hmm. Um, if you're going to look at decarbonizing, decarboniz decarbonizing your product mix, you got to know which products are driving emissions, you know, more than others. And then if you're an investor, which of your holdings are the largest contribution to your to your scope three emissions? Um, and you can't rely on industry averages and 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 kind of uh, high level assumptions to really build meaningful, actionable insights. And you mentioned, you know, making the case to leadership, you know, for ESG. Um, you know, if you've got a leadership group that's maybe been a little resistant to it or not, you know, providing enough resources, you know, what's sort of the best way to kind of, you know, turn that tide around and, and you know, get through to them? Yeah, I think that um, it's, this is, this is a challenge that's going to be ever present for the next, you know, few decades. It's been the same problem that, that people have faced for the last 15, 20 years. Um, but ultimately, what what we see is that this is this is becoming just a very um, a very pragmatic problem. We're not talking about a problem that you can't see and touch anymore. You're talking about a problem that is very tangible. Um, and for humans, like we we need that to be able to make good decisions and to be able to act on problems. Um, and so right now, what what we see that the posture that's most effective um, in the market is, hey, regulators and investors are going to market and asking very straightforward questions. And fundamentally that question is, who's gonna win as we transition to the low carbon economy and who's gonna lose? 
Um, if I'm an investor and I'm managing a pension fund, I certainly don't want to have a target date fund out in 2040 that is predominantly invested in fossil fuels. Mm. I think that that just doesn't make sense if I'm looking at just pure economics. Um, and that is the, the overall undertone of why this industry exists, right? We want to understand which companies are going to thrive as we move towards this low carbon economy and which ones aren't. Um, and if we want to thrive as a business, we have to get ahead of this. We have to think strategically and, and actually treat this like the core fundamental business decision. And I think you see the CEOs, the companies that are actually highly valued now and that are actually um, really thinking about this problem pra like pragmatically are in the best position to win. Um, and, and we are helping uncover and illuminate the overall challenges that are in position for, for this transition to happen for businesses. Um, if you're blind to it right now, I say that you're blind to the risk that you're imposing on your business to say like, mm, we're, we're actually probably not, if you're, let's say you're a supplier to, uh, to a big retailer or something, um, and you're not paying attention to the emissions associated with the products that you make. Um, you're not thinking about how this product can get used in, in five, 10 years. And if you're not thinking about that R&D problem, um, you're going to be behind. Uh, and I think that we're seeing ESG practitioners that can use pragmatic business tools and language um, to understand why this is a really important problem um, are the ones that are going to further. Uh, and, and it's not about pulling heartstrings, particularly um, as much as I obviously deeply care about this issue and spent my whole career uh, in this space, it's, um, it's really about meeting the market where it's at and, and ensuring that this, uh, this problem is really treated like, a exist like the existential threat that it is to the viability of your business long term. Have you seen any examples of companies that have already made pretty good strides in that direction? Uh, that maybe you can kind of point to, to to your leadership and say, "Hey, look at what these guys did." Yeah, I think that there there are obvious leaders. Um, I think out there uh, that are getting, I would say, getting way ahead. Um, which you know, you would point to like Microsoft and um, and, and you know a few a, a few companies, some that I can mention like HPE and and, and others that that we work with. Um, there, I I, the, I hesitate to to make them an example. Because I don't think that, um, you know, Microsoft has a war chest um, and they have the ability to think about things in a very long horizon um, and they don't look anything like, you know, companies that might be embedded in a manufacturing supply chain yeah, or other yeah. things. I think, I think that um, the best, like, we, we have a lot of examples of working with um, you know, heavy industry and manufacturers that um, are just now starting to think about how to manage these problems and embed them in business decisions. And that's, that's the incremental smart approach that we need to make, right? Where we're saying, all right, uh, we have this product line, we need to innovate it and improve it. How can we make it more efficient? All right, that's a good near-term win. We then need to make, you know, we then need to figure out how, what of our manufacturing process can we actually just electrify? Can we get rid of all of the fossil fuels and, and gases and other things that we need that go into making this product? Okay, great. That's maybe like a three, five year problem. Um, and just spread them out and think through tactically 
which ones can we start with? What are the next? What are the next? Um, and that, that's how this gets done. There's no silver bullet, and that's like a total cliche, but it's totally true. Um, and it, it's also something that requires a lot of persistence year to year, um, where you, you have to make the incremental decision to manage it incrementally. Um, and if there's just many examples of companies doing that, um, not just the, the, the companies that get AA on, on their CDT response or are on ESG kind of benchmark index indices. Um, and, and, you know, is it, it's that kind of, you know, pragmatic approach where you, you, it's really got to be kind of, you know, sort of set up in phases. You can't, like you said, you know, you're not going to hit a home run right away and just say, all right, problem solved. It's, it's really got to be kind of laid out systematically and, and sort of, you know, tackled that way instead of just sort of, you know, here's two, three things we can do and, and we're good. Yeah, I think that, you know, um, it's like a lot of things that face more mature companies, right? A lot of the problems that come down the pike where, um, you know, you might have a, a really established business that's working and then you have an opportunity to, to grow into a new market. Um, you know, you're going to make the smart incremental bets and not put it all on one thing. Um, and it's not, it's the same, same with climate, same with transition rest, right? We're, we're looking at, the the incremental improvements and some of them are going to be no cost some of them are going to be m marginal some of them are going to be high um and you've got to kind of work through each one uh at, at its at its most like at the most opportune time right some technologies aren't quite ready yet some technologies are going to take another couple of years but there's a whole lot that's ready right now um renewables are priced well um storage technology has come a long way um, they're, you know, I'd say electric vehicles are mm. fantastic and are in many ways better than others. Like there's a lot of kind of, uh, a lot of good technology that's in place right now that can help make a significant progress. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, looking at even five, five years ago, it seems like, you know, uh, companies are positioned much better to, to really kind of tackle this and take it seriously. Uh, 100%. Yeah, I think that um, we're, we're finally seeing um, the, the kind of flood of capital. I think that, you know, Inflation Reduction Act is, is going to be a massive boon to this in the United States. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that the, the understanding that this is actually an immediate, you know, problem is, is, is really accelerating the advancement of technology. And I think it's, it's obviously been frustrating for people that have spent, you know, their entire careers in this industry to understand, like, why has it taken so long? But it's so encouraging to be to be here now where um, there are a lot like we we have to cut emissions in half, you know, in the next you know seven, eight years. And we can do it with what we got right now. Mm -hmm. um, like we don't need a huge amount of kind of step change, you know, completely new way in which we power, you know, airplanes and sustainable aviation fuel doesn't need to be here tomorrow. Like there's a lot of really uh, tractable solutions that are ready and, and cost competitive right now. Uh, and that wasn't true five years ago. Um, yeah. And that's a uh, much different environment. Do you think it's going to happen? I mean, I guess it's a possibility, right? You can't necessarily say for sure, but. Um, I think that, uh, it's funny. I think that we're, 
we're going to meet this problem like we as a species typically meet problems like this where uh, we wait till the absolute last moment. We try every conceivable alternative and then we realize we have to just go do the hard stuff yeah. and we have to do it now. Um, and we're going to try to do a crazy catch up in uh, over the next couple decades. Um, and I would I would venture to guess that we're we're going to show meaningful progress because uh, this is just going to become more and more important. I mean, I have a daughter um, and I want to know that she has a viable plan in the future and I'm not unique, right? Like yeah. anyone who who is a parent, anyone who actually looks out and enjoys, you know, seeing a world that, where they can live and breathe uh, and, 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 you know, live, be comfortable. Uh, I think that they're going to understand that this is a, this is an important problem. Um, I think what, what's challenging is that it's just going to be, uh, there's going to be, going to be a lot of uh, feet dragging that require massive transition to happen very fast. Yeah. Um, and I think that the good news is we're going to have likely have the technology, like the investments are being made right now to be able to do that transition. Um, but doing it really quickly is going to be really hard. I mean, anyone who, who is, you know, uh, I was speaking to a large utility a few months ago um, and they were reflecting on all of the, kind of infrastructure they have in place in, you know, this is on the East Coast where they've got, you know, natural gas and fuel oil kind of mm -hmm. uh, in every single home and apartment um, for millions and millions of humans. Um, and they're going to have to rip up all of that infrastructure that's taken like 200 years to put in place. Like that's going to be really hard to do in a yeah. decade. Um, and and the longer we wait on these problems, just the, the, the more the more pain, the painful this transition will feel. Yeah. Um, and how, and the quicker it has to happen. Well, Tim, great, uh, great stuff. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I've got hope for the future, so that helps. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad I could be, uh, uh, optimistic for you. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm encouraged and, and I appreciate the time. Really, really, uh, great conversation and, 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 uh, appreciate it. All right. Thanks. That wraps up episode 160 of VHS on tap. You can find more information about the show and listen to on-demand episodes at ehsdailyadvisor.blr.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope to join me next time.